This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. What's good, fam? I'm your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farmed in ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard Podcast. We're fresh off of Empire, so we're feeling empowered, of course, and this is going to be another special, special episode. I have the biggest boss of them all with us today, the Determinist. Like, you, you know you have to be real if you're the Determinist. So, uh, again, guys, again, I'm Jim Pruitt. I'm just super happy to have this episode going on. Um, we're going to talk about some interesting things, but today's title is going to be Pushing P. That's right, baby. Pushing P, Phenol Bar for Alcohol Withdrawal. And I have the biggest boss of them all with us today. Go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Mark McDowell. Thank you so much for having me today. It's kind of a dream and looking forward to this moment for over a year now. Um, but first, I got to credit where credit's due. Uh, Jimmy, what a phenomenal conference we just came out of last week. We were up in Chicago, I think almost every ER pharmacist I know attended. Um, and we've been talking about it for the past week or so. So well done. Uh, looking forward to next year's. Appreciate it. It's going to uh, definitely be cool. So let's just get into this. This is something that we're all super interested in. I think everyone has an opinion about alcohol withdrawal. I think truly that's one thing. Everyone has their own opinion. My ED docs, they have their opinion. And even if you talk about like different, like what, what, what when did you grow up when it, when it came to this? If you're newer, you're like, oh, I want to get in the phenobarb. And then if you're like, if you've been practicing for like 20, 30 years, like I've used that in the past and it's, it's whatever. But before we get deep into like the drug part, this is something I like to start everything off. Be like, why is this even important? Because like everyone's like, what are we talking about here? Why is this important to you? Yeah, you know, and I think it's by virtue of where I trained and kind of um, the initial residency research practice I was involved with. So I did both of my years of residency down on the south side of Chicago at the large tertiary trauma center, Advocate Christ Medical Center, and my second year specialized in EM. Um, but I was really fortunate to kind of train under and do research with one of uh, the big uh, alcohol withdrawal gurus, uh, Porvi Shah, down there. So she was um, has been a thought leader in this area and has been researching it, you know, for close to a decade. Um, and really, I kind of um, got in tune with this idea of severe alcohol withdrawal, um, not just being how the patient presents, but it's really uh, uh, almost like a hospital long course, right? And the way that I always phrased it is uh, the mantra I always try to use is early recognition means a lot, right? Because, you know, we all know the statistics, you know, like 85% of Americans are going to have at least one drink of alcohol in their life, but, you know, X percent is going to come into the hospital uh, for alcohol withdrawal, right? And I think those patients declare themselves pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. I think a lot of ourselves and our learners and our physician colleagues recognize those patients right off the bat. I think what um, some of us struggle with sometimes is those patients who get admitted for cap or maybe for a long bone fracture wind up on the floor for a handful of days and then just decompensate abruptly, right? Either, you know, we hadn't done a great history and found out, you know, there was some underlying alcohol use disorder or uh, the patient just had never gone into um, alcohol withdrawal before, right? And those patients, I think, are substantially harder to manage, you know, for for a number of reasons. So um, I think if we look at it through that kind of lens or that paradigm of, you know, this patient's presenting at different um, states in their disease state, um, phenobarbital um, actually, I think, can make a lot of difference in uh, almost every type of presentation we look at. Absolutely. And I think that's just a big thing is like, if you see a patient, these are not just ED patients and you're fortunate, you get to see kind of the ED components, ICU component, and just being, I think even in residency, you see them everywhere. So I think, again, as you mentioned, the big thing is like being able to capture these people early and at least identify them early. So that's going to be something that I think is important. And the cool thing is, you know, pharmacist is almost completely drug, drug driven. 
um, except for the few people who want to give a beer consult. Like <laughs> I, I had that in PGY too. The pharmacist had to take care of the beer consults for people. And it's like, dude, I, I don't want to go to the to the pharmacy and grab a Coke 45 for this guy. Okay. Like <laughs> I'm not bringing that to the ED. <laughs> but, but again, I promise you people would, would, would ask for, Hey, can you just get this guy some beer? And it's like, it's just not the same or just like nothing all like dude, come on guys come on so let's let's not go that route but oh yeah you- i would love to know the 340b pricing on that. <laughs> that that would be great but can you like just give a, a quick breakdown of a path though again i try to mention it but you're you probably can explain it much better than i can um you know i'm, I'm an er guy so you know i like to be brass tacks very straightforward and i think this is a disease state a lot of our learners are going to be familiar with and probably have heard a lot about recently so i'll not spend too much time perseverating um, but essentially, um, you know, your uh, exposure to chronic alcohol or chronic, you know, um, GABAergic drugs is going to lead to a, a downregulation in your GABA receptors over time. Um, I think which we're all familiar with. Um, we we'll also see a concomitant upregulation of your NMDA receptors, potentially of your AMPA receptors as well. Um, and that's just again uh, due to a prolonged exposure of uh, those GABAergic drugs, specifically alcohol in this situation or ethanol. Um, and so when that's abruptly taken away or kind of tapered off, we will start to see some autonomic dysregulation um, and CNS autonomic um, dysregulation um, uh, uh, in, in the setting of the uh, lack of presence of ethanol or those are GABAergic agents. So what's interesting um, is that phenobarbital might actually work on all three of those receptors uh, that I just mentioned. Um, and that's really interesting because we look at um, the other medications that we have and they're more isolated, more targeted, these different receptors, which, you know, uh, theoretically uh, makes more sense. Uh, but, you know, we do have now some substantial data that shows that, you know, this phenobarbital in conjunction with or as monotherapy um, really does have a role in the treatment of severe alcohol withdrawal. Absolutely. I think it's just one of the things that is actually it's super cool. If you just start looking at all the different components of how phenobart works and you're like, wait a second, like this is this is really cool. At high enough levels, we act as GABA or, you know, we can get that AMPA receptor. It's like, it's just pretty cool. You can hit everything instead of me having to give a benzo and then give ketamine and then find a way to give a large enough dose of something that actually act as a uh, GABA. And it's, it's just super. And when I found that out, I was like, Whoa, this is, this is super nerdy. It was actually, a, this is actually my first ever uh, pharmacy pearl, like four years ago. It was like, you know, bar for alcohol adult back like 2018. So it was like one of the coolest things for me in the world. Yeah. Very high yield. Right. And it's so interesting about the history of phenobarbital, you know, that was, you know, that, um, was a precursor well before we had chlorodiaz epoxide in the 60s, right? This has been around for over you know 120 years now, um, but it's just only kind of resurged uh, over the past you know 10, 12 years, uh, which kind of coincided with the start of my career. Um, so I kind of feel you talked about different timelines. You know, like I grew up with phenobarb. I almost yeah. feel like a sense of, and it's kind of cool to see it's you know um, one of the one of the more popular talks that people are giving these days. Yeah, and especially as more and more data comes out, I, at one period of time, it was more controversial. And I got a, I got a message and the guy was like, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It's like, we're, it's not very controversial anymore. And it's like, I was like, well, okay, well, I guess not. But still people are, depending on what camp you're in, if you're at these mm-hmm. big academic centers and you're, you're doing all, a bunch of this stuff and it's like, you talk about it a ton of time, that's cool. But I have to remember, and Empower actually helped me quite a bit with this, People practice style in their locations and what they're used to is so different. It varies so much. So I think us continue to talk about these things and being able to kind of dive into how to make it happen is a pretty unique thing. So um, it's not controversial, but I would say getting it done consistently throughout the U.S. probably still is. So. 
Very true. And I think if you print off the chat section from any part of that conference, you'll see uh, a variety of opinions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so let's try to transition now. We talked about kind of the path, though. This is, a, I think, probably one of the more interesting opponents is the scoring tools that we mm-hmm. use. And realistically, what's happening at the bedside, and I think we're fortunate to be, you know, practicing at the bedside, we can see what's actually happening. But can we talk about the CWA score or any variation that you've seen of, of the CWA score utilized? Sure. Yeah. And I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head. This is kind of a fun part to talk about, too. You know, and this is one of my favorite topics to go over with learners, right? They all learn the CWA AR in school. You know, and they're used to, you know, it's, it's a 10 point system or a 10 criteria system. Um, and the first thing I always do with my, my learners is I think I ask them, hey, think about the last, you know, wedding you went to, or think about the last, you know, maybe your bar crawl for your graduation. Give yourself a CWA score for that next morning. Think back about when, you know, you're waking up, give yourself a CWA score. And, you know, these learners are, it's remarkable every single time their, their minds are blown how high they score um, just from going, going to a, going to a party. Right. And I think that's a very like elucidating and almost like light bulb moment for some of these patients and like, or some of these students, I should say that, you know, this, this is a good tool and this can recognize a lot of things, but um, not necessarily um, in tune with, you know, severe alcohol withdrawal requiring, you know, acute intervention. Right. And obviously it's a very messy, uh, messy tool and it's very, very subjective and uh, so much so that um, especially like, let's take, for example, the prime patient, you could use a CWAR uh, score and someone who's in the ED, who's con- conser- um, conversant with you, or someone who's in the general medical floor, who's conversant with you, the interrelator um, uh, reliability uh, for these scores is just it's phenomenally low, right? And that's if your patient is coherent enough to answer these questions, um, if the patient's coherent enough to uh, want to be conversant with uh, who's ever um, interviewing them as well. So my second tool I always do is I tell my students or uh, even my residents, hey, there's nothing stopping us, you know, as the pharmacist from going bedside and calculating a CWA score on our own, right? So it's a routine thing I have um, all of my learners do. And what the best is if I have two learners on at the same time, you know, a PGY2 and a P4, or a P3, send them in at the same time, have the P have the P4 or the, the, the senior one lead the questioning, but both independently score, right? And they come back and I say, don't discuss it. Just give me your answer. And you will see drastically different scores. And it's not because they did anything wrong, but it's because it's such a subjective, subjective tool, right? And that's in the setting of our most ideal patients, right? And as I think we all know, and is very often quoted that, you know, the CWA score and CWA AR specifically was never, ever validated in any type of ICU or step-down patient, right? And that just makes a lot more sense. That number, you know, of 20% of patients not being able to verbally converse with you and answer those questions appropriately, is just going to go up exponentially, um, especially when we start talking about, you know, um, mental status changes or respiratory decline or, you know, eventually um, intubation as well. So, um, you know, there's some recommendations out there by different guidelines. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, um, it's a phenomenal society. They, they are very, very on top of their game and very, very um, um, uh, publishing heavy as of late, right? It's a growing specialty. And they, they make a clear statement saying in the ICU, there, there's really no place for CWA scores. We should be essentially using a RAS score at that point. And I think that's reflected in the practice I've grown up with and my training and what I've seen. I think that's probably pretty ubiquitous with other places too, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I have seen a little resurgence in the, in the literature talking about the mind score. Um, you know, that's just a slightly different take on, um, the CWA score with a little bit less, um, opportunity for variability on the patient's end, right? A little bit less, um, subjective, uh, data supplied by the patient and more objective data, such as, you know, hemodynamics, uh, like that too. But the, the last thing I really want to always touch on here and what I really want to hone in with my, my learners is 
If you look at all those 10 points on, uh, or 10 criteria on the CUA AR, there's one that you definitely cannot fake the litmus test. I'll say and that's diaphoresis, right? So, you know, it's, it's always brought up in talks and I think that it's got a place here as well. So um, if it's really, really hard to fake diaphoresis guys, so make that maybe the first step um, when you're assessing a CUA score for yourself. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we're, we're fortunate to have like an experience of seeing these patients over and over again. And we just usually walk in the room. It's like, oh yeah, that's what it looks like. That that's that's legit, but and it's so hard because like we they can go and score the patient and you're like yeah no he needs a little bit more and it's like you can try your best to make sure we use all these scores and these tools but realistically I I love it when me my senior medical resident and the attending walks in we look at the patient talk to the nurse get everyone's concern and we're like okay this is what the textbooks say we should do this is what we're gonna do based off experience of managing these patients before. And this guy, and it's always the, the look like shit score. Let's add that one in there as well. <laughs> Cause some of these guys looked horrible, man. And we have to get them taken care of now or they're going to seize on us. And it's right. a nightmare when we send them to the unit. Like you had said earlier, yeah, catch them all early. And you make a great point, Jimmy, you know, it's the gestalt, right? You know, we like, see all this data set about physician gestalt, you know, versus like these PE rollouts, these MI rollouts and the gestalt always says just as good. Um, if not better in certain clinical scenarios. So I think like, I like to think that there's some pharmacist gestalt in there too. And like you mentioned, always get, always get the most veteran ER nurse and they can just say, no, that's, that's a real litmus test. Yeah. That's the real, if you get all the senior people from every specialty to come in and walk into it together, <laughs> I don't care what type of CT you got or what, what, what type of well <laughs> score, whatever you got is, is going to be correct based off what we've seen. So yeah. Lots of path though, lots of just scoring. And then I think everyone can have their own score. So when I was at Grady, we had a, we had a Gawa, we had a mm. Grady one. And then um, I believe uh, we were speaking with Lance out there in Denver. They had their score as well. So everyone is going to have their own score and like none of it's wrong. Like, I think we're going to put point that out there. It's just, how can you find a way to most likely on most consistently score people and identify them as being at high risk of having, you know, more severe symptoms. So I think that's something we, we should just throw and point out there, but let's transition to the drugs. Cause this is going to be the, the, the key part. Uh, the, the, the lovely benzodiazepines. Uh, can you just give a, a very brief overview of the benzos? And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about phenobarb. Yeah. And I think the analogy that gets often used here is if you got a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail, right? And if that's the only tool you got and it's the only tool you're used to, you're going to use it, right? And is it going to work a lot of times? Absolutely. Is it going to work every time? Absolutely not, right? So kind of knowing what's like in your armamentarium is really, really important. So obviously it's a direct agonist of GABA, A. Eh? Um, it's going to work in conjunction with your actual uh, free-floating plasma GABA, right? And the analogy I like to use is uh, you have a door, right? And that's your GABA receptor giving a benzodiazepine is like turning that doorknob and opening the door, right? It's going to allow those chloride ions to flow through and then it's going to close again. I think that's a pretty good example. Um, the data that uh, is, talks about, you know, GABA is, you know, stems from like, you know, as early as like the 1950s and uh, chloride epoxide, as I mentioned, being the first uh, benzodiazepine that was um, approved in the U.S. And what you can see here is, you know, versus placebo, obviously GABA, uh, GABAergic agents such as benzodiazepines are going to do much better in terms of seizures, in terms of uh, delirium tremens, and even in terms of death. Um, we start talking about the different types of benzodiazepine strategies. I think by the time Jimmy, you and I come to practice, you know, symptom triggered benzos or STB uh, was really, really the mainstay. And not to say that STB um, is uh, 
has better outcomes in terms of, you know, DTs or um, respiratory events compared to um, scheduled benzos, uh, but it, I think it exposes you to a lower amount of total benzos with those same results, right? And I think, again, just in our short careers, you know, benzos have kind of been, have gotten extraordinarily bad rap in certain scenarios, um, obviously not with the alcohol withdrawals, especially, but we do know there's like some long-term sequelae uh, with giving too much benzo in this case as well. Um, and I think that um, the other mantra I want to recognize here is there's a lot of ways to skin this cat, right? You said there's a lot of different ways to look at um, uh, assessing severity. There's a lot of different ways to approach treatment too. And, you know, if you got something that works for you, I wouldn't necessarily say that's wrong, but maybe there's something a little bit uh, more data that we have now that can maybe kind of reshift that paradigm. Absolutely. I think this is, benzos, again, it's just something I, I always consider benzos for alcohol withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal the, the vancosin of alcohol withdrawal. We, we just <laughs> do it because we think, it, but again, it may not work for every patient and it, it may necessarily not fit. The, it's the key, key for the, that lock. It may not be the right one. And, it starts getting interesting. And when I started to note, I saw a few cases of the benzo-induced like delirium, the benzo-induced like, acute, like, acutely. Because I've always was told, oh, benzos are bad just for intubated patients that are on it for a prolonged period of time versus the big doses that we have to give for alcohol withdrawal. And I was like, wait, this guy's getting like worse. Like this guy's not getting better. And that's when I, I start see, hearing about the paradoxical reactions that you can have with benzodiazepines at these bigger doses. And it started to make me think like, hey, there has to be something else we can use, you know, and we can go back and forth, guys. And I put some stuff in the show notes, whether it's diazepam, whether it's lorazepam. Um, many people are not necessarily using midazolam, just the PK doesn't add up as, as much. But we can we can talk back and forth all the different benzos that we have. Again, and I want to caveat that this is mostly talking about the more severe patient. So we're talking about IV symptom trigger. Again, it doesn't matter what you use. You're going to be using much higher doses. But at the same time, I think we have to just continue to look at, okay, what is this patient? What's going on? And whether we're actually having the, the end result that we're looking for, because it only takes your nurse coming back to you three or four times saying, hey, this is not working give a bigger dose or do something else until you like, okay, my hands are tired. I have to switch something, switch something up. And that's where phenobart for me comes in. Um, when I started to notice people reacting very differently and I was like, wait, phenobarb is like legit. And I would do a lot more. And I was like, this is amazing. So can you give us a brief overview of phenobarb and like, why is it such a, you know, phenomenal drug when it comes to alcohol withdrawal? Sure. Uh, starting with, you know, the receptor mechanism again, you know, it's going to work on the GABA-A receptor, but just uh, a slightly different subunit and it's going to affect it slightly differently. So going back to that door analogy I'd use, you know, uh, benzos are going to open that door and close it again. I always tell my learners that um, giving phenobarbital is like opening that door and then kicking a doorstop in it, right? So you need that GABA to, uh, in conjunction with that benzodiazepine to open up that door. The phenobarb is just going to prolong the opening of that door as well as throwing a doorstop in there, allowing more chloride ions to flow past that membrane. Um, and what's really cool is it has these uh, pleiotropic effects too, like we mentioned. You know, it's going to um, antagonize NMDA receptors, going to antagonize AMPA receptors. Again, most of that data is coming out of murine data um, with uh, rodent gerbils and rats um, uh, from, you know, the past co couple decades, but, you know, it's, it does seem to have a, a really, really pro profound effect. And I think you mentioned it like your first time using phenobarbital um, in a severe patient, you're like, you know, man, this guy looks like he's going to buy himself a tube, give it to him half an hour later, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty profound effect. And I, I think, I don't think anyone's going to forget their first time using it for a severe alcohol withdrawal where you thought, man, this guy just bought himself, you know, an ICU admin, you know, 10 hours later, he's, he's chilling on the floor. Um, so just a phenomenal uh, drug and the 
often touted, you know, prolonged PK that, you know, certain, you know, maybe physicians or colleagues get a little worried about. I look at that as a benefit, you know, it's got this auto tapering that you see um, people often bring up, you know, Hey, it's hepatically uh, metabolized. And that's true. It does go through phase one and phase two hepatic metabolism. Um, and, you know, in your, in your bad cirrhotics, you know, that's again, maybe even another benefit, right. That's going to hang out even longer. Um, we know it, if we can get into the data, but we know that's going to hopefully decrease your, your benzo exposure as well. You're going to get more bang for your buck, right. Um, there's a lot of ways to slice and dice the literature, which we're going to get into in a second, but I mean, anecdotally speaking, it's, it was a game changer. Right. And I remember my first job out of residency, it was at, you know, um, a trauma center, but it was a little bit smaller, um, community-based trauma center on the West side of Chicago. And, you know, uh, it was the, probably the first time that we'd ever done phenobarb, um, it was like maybe my first month there. And I came to the doctor and was like, Hey, let's give this a shot. Otherwise, you know, this guy's going to buy himself some rock your and it was just um, seeing like senior nurses and, you know, some of the senior attendings were being like, holy cow. Yeah. Wow. This is a, uh, didn't think this would be possible. We were just kind of humoring you, but it looked, uh, I think it was a game changer for them as well. So um, I encourage learners to kind of um, just keep that in the back of their minds. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's really cool. I remember that one of the cases I had when I was in Augusta, I had a, I had a senior doc and the cool thing about when I was in Augusta, most of their docs are military. So they have some type mm-hmm. of experience prior to coming back to residency. And they're usually seen, they've seen a lot of this stuff. They're, you know, a little older as far as an age, but they're more experienced. And I had a guy and I was, he was like, yeah, Jimmy, I don't know about this, man. This doesn't, I said, listen, I said, give me two doses in, in 45 minutes. He's like, what? I said, just give me two doses. I said, really? I said, give me 260 and then, and then 130 of phenobarb. He said, I just don't, as I said, get all your stuff set up. Like you're going to intubate do exactly what you want. Just the time is going to take you to, to get everything else done. Give me that time frame and give me two doses. And he's like, all right, I said, come in here, look at the patient. He's like four point restraints, you know, diaphoretic, just like, you know, hallucinations, auditory, visual, all of it. He's scoring off the charts. My nurse is exhausted, <laughs> exhausted from the, I think we gave close to like 40 of, ben, of, um, of Ativan at that point. And it was just like, I'm tired of this. Let's just intubate the patient just for the sanity of the ED. Mm-hmm. Maybe 260, he calmed down enough to where the nurse is like calling other nurses to come in. Mm-hmm. Patient. And we got him to a decent point. He still scored a mile. I gave him 130. And I had the doc come in after that. And he was like, what the hell did you give him? <laughs> and I was like, dude, this is phenobarb. I, I told you, I think this guy can be a, a good candidate for it. He was like calling the other residents from other pods to come over. And it was like, you remember this guy earlier today? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, what'd you give him? He's just like sitting there just chilling, like sleeping. Like he was tacky in 150s, hypertensive to 180s. This guy's like all over the place. We give him two doses of phenobarb. This guy's chilling in the 90s, heart rate wise, blood pressures come down to normal. And he's like sitting there snoring, a good snoring, a good snoring. Like, you know, not that he can't protect his airway, but good. And this guy ended up going, we had to call ICU, had to actually come down, see the patient. They're like, yeah, we're not going to accept them. <laughs> and everyone was just like blown away by that. And of course, it, make, it makes you feel great as a pharmacist that you can do that. And I always tell people uh, that is one of my, my things where I say, I take you from ICU to ICU later. <laughs> you can basically go go somewhere else at the floor or even home. And those are just big moments. And I think really key for us as pharmacists, if we can just know what it looks like and we're just fortunate, we can see it. You know, mm-hmm. for, for me, I'm fortunate working in states where I recommend it. I give it. I monitor the patient and all these things are happening. And then you can show your team like I'm, I'm just as invested in, in this as you are. And it really just helps the overall ED, ED uh, I would just say the throughput for, for other patients because you're not constantly in the room. So for me, that was one of the, the big things. Uh, and it's really just unique, just using it. But 
the next part I really want to get into is just the data. And uh, lots of times when we recommend certain stuff, people are like, ah, you know, that doesn't have any data. That's, that's, that's crap. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> 2022. As of now, I feel very confident what, what we have. And of course, we don't have all, all day to talk about it. But can you just like walk me through the things, the, the studies or the things that you care about? And let's just like walk through a few of those, because I think that people really need to know that there's at least something out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you mentioned, th- there's too much to talk about, like just f- for this scope and even for a conference, there's too much to talk about as well. But um, I'll try to hit on the ones that I think they're most important and the ones that will kind of shape my uh, paradigm for how I approach different types of patients. So um, I think we can't get started without talking about Rosenson. You know, I give so much credit to Rosenson and his colleagues for really, really bringing this back to the map. And I don't think we'd be in the same place we are right now without that study. Right. And the best part is, you know, it was probably one of the highest quality ones done that we have so far, you know, prospective, you know, hundred patients, which is pretty remarkable for a prospective alcohol withdrawal trial. And, you know, they went big, they went with 10 mix per kilo right off the bat. Right. So uh, this was uh, uh, early 2010s, like around 20, uh, 2011, it came out in EPUB, 2012, it was finally published in print. And essentially what they looked at was a 10 mg per kg load of phenobarbital up front or um, your regular symptom triggered benzos, right? And I think that's exactly what our docs want to see, right? That's the exact equivalency that we're looking for. Um, you know, what it really, really did show was one the thing that they're going to care about the most is respiratory depression, right? And really, there was really no difference between these two groups in terms of respiratory depression, in terms of uh, who bought themselves an intubation. Um, and the other really big win was where, where was the dispo for these guys, right? And just like you said, was it I see you later? I love that. Uh, I see you later, man. <laughs> yeah, these guys were going to the floor, man. These guys are going to their step downs. They weren't buying a unit bed. And you brought up a really good point with the anecdote you had mentioned from Bethesda, I think you said was, you know, uh, in terms of resources, right? So patient outcomes, obviously very, very important. But think about that um, ICU bed as being a resource for the department as well, right? You're going to have, you know, a septic intubated patient boarding in the ED. So this person, you know, uh, goes through their withdrawal state without being exposed to phenobarbital. It doesn't make sense, right? In, in addition to that, you know, the nurses, you know, going back and forth from your ADS to the bedside with four or six at Ativan every 15 minutes, it just, it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, this study, um, I could talk about its, you know, um, its benefits all day long, but it did come over some heats uh, for a couple different things where, you know, a lot of the patients in the symptom triggered benzo arm um, and the patients in the phenobarbital arm did actually cross over, you know, some of those symptom triggered benzos got a little bit of phenobarbital. And then the phenobarbital arm got some symptom triggered benzos. And really, I think that's almost a strength of the study because that's my practice essentially, right? Load them up, put them on, a, put them on a CAR score, what you, whatever you use at, um, you know, your local institution. And it was safe. You know, they kept these guys out of the unit still with that as well. And then the patients who got phenobarb loaded later, they didn't do quite as well, right? They didn't do, they still used a lot more resources than they needed. Um, so I think that was just a, a kind of a, a validation to me. Um, you know, they still use the CWA score like I, like I typically do. So, I mean, I know it's not as you know validated in these severe patients, but it still did got the job done. So I give a lot of, a lot of credit to that, that research group. And I think, you know, they, they've probably impacted a lot of lives, a lot of departments. I think if you even, if anyone who talks about phenobarb in the ED or ICU area within the last like 15 years, you, you really have to bring that study up because it really changed because the biggest thing that I have a hard time with is convincing my doc to use a big dose. Like, and now when they mentioned that, I said, like, oh, well, I know a study where they gave 10 mix per kick up front in the ED. And they're like, let me see it. And they read it and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like the, the really good thing that, you know, my mentor, Porvi Shah always brought up was what's your status dose for phenobarbital, right? You're comfortable giving that to someone who's already altered or someone who's going to be post and you're going to 
think their airway is going to be okay, you know, giving double that dose. So but yeah, exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's probably one of the most printed out articles I think I've printed in my career in the department. Yeah. It's, a, it's a constant reader for all residents that, that come on rotation with me. So again, if, if you guys are listening and you match the MUSC or you're at Grady, just know <laughs> I'm going to ask you that. So that, get yourself ready for that. So what, what else you got for us? Because that's, that's a big one. That's like the OG of Phenobar for, for right. us in, at this point. Yeah, um, and I think moving on to the next kind of population would be the NYSAVIC um, and colleague trial. Um, this is a little bit bigger, right? We had about 560 patients in this one. Um, unfortunately, it's retrospective, but what's cool about this one or what's unique about this one is it specifically looks like the general medicine population, right? They didn't look at severe patients in the ED. They didn't look at patients who had already bought themselves, um, you know, an ICU stay. What they looked at was, you know, phenobarbital monotherapy versus, you know, symptom-triggered benzomonotherapy again. So very, very similar to what we saw in the past, but the really interesting thing about how they dosed their phenobarbital um, is they used an algorithm in this case that one stratified them off of uh, severity of alcohol withdrawal or their alcohol withdrawal severity risk looking at things that I look at every single day, right? Have they gotten phenobarb in the past? Have they been intubated in the past for alcohol withdrawal? Have they seized from alcohol withdrawal in the past? All these, you know, big red flag items that make you think, hey, this is a serious player. They worked that into their dosing up front and then they stratified them by their respiratory risk as well. So, you know, do they have concomitant sedatives on board? What have they already received? And based off, you know, those two factors, they uh, provided a MIG per kig dosing uh, to their clinicians up front um, in the meantime. So, um, just by virtue of that, and this being a retrospective, um, you know, chart review um, that looked at, you know, protocol change, um, we got to see some pretty cool information that, you know, again, phenobarbital did just as well in these general medical patients who were loaded very, very highly up front uh, compared to symptom-triggered benzos. And if you imagine, you let's say you're a doc in 2015, Rosenson papers been out for about three or four years. It's kind of getting some um, news out there in the foam world, maybe a podcast or two. If you have a serious player, you're going to want to put them in that phenobarbital arm. And that was exactly what they did. They saw that, you know, they could choose either one of these patients who were more severe or had a more severe history of alcohol withdrawal wound up in that phenobarbital arm statistically significantly higher um, and uh, more often um, than they still did just as well as that symptom triggered benzos. So there was almost a bias against phenobarbital um, cohort and they still did just as good, right? And then the last caveat I always bring up with this trial is so cool. The patients who um, technically failed the symptom triggered benzo arm, they also were uh, kind of um, administered some phenobarbital and they kind of did a subgroup analysis showing that, yeah, if they had probably received phenobarbital up front, they would have had a, a much, much better time. And that really reinforces what the Rosenson crossover showed us as well. Yeah. So I think just uh, another um, another lens to look at this for in terms of our general medical patients, not just our severe you know, ICU patients. Yeah. So I think that, that's one of the key things I'm looking at across the board. And what makes me feel very comfortable now is that really you can, you can go down. 2019 was big. I think there was like four or five studies that was published. And, but the cool thing is that you can look at it in any way you want it to. Uh, you can look at it as you just give a load up front and then immediately follow up with the benzos. You can do all phenobarb compared to to uh, benzos. So, and then the cool part is, is each population. There's some ICU studies. There's some floor ones like this one here, and there's some ED ones. So it makes me feel very comfortable now to know that we can play it however you want to, and I can slice and dice this however you want. If you want to give a big load up front, we can do that. If you're nervous, I can literally give you multiple doses, 260, 130, my weight up to where I want to check a level for you to make you feel better. And then we can, we can go from there, but this is the, we're just at a really cool point with phenobarb from a data standpoint that we have a little bit of something in every population. So that's, that's yeah. the cool part. Any, any other one did you want to highlight? Because 
it's, it's so much out there now. <laughs> Truly. I think, you know, there's a couple other ones that are interesting that talk about, you know, yeah, using smaller, you know, scheduled tapers. And I think that's uh, really showed some benefit in the Tidwell uh, and colleagues study. But the last one I kind of really want to highlight is more recent. And you had mentioned 2018 being a big year than the Nelson study. Um, that was a really good, another retrospective one that looked at kind of those three different cohorts um, that we kind of talk about, you know, pure phenobarbital monotherapy, phenobar plus symptom triggered benzos or just symptom triggered benzos on their own. And again, this is retrospective, a little bit smaller. Um, and it really showed that the, the main outcome in most of these studies is ICU admits and that there was no difference between any of those, right? And you got to think about in terms of resource utilization, you know, your nurse's workflow, um, just total drug exposure. Um, it just makes makes a lot more sense um, to maybe gravitate away from symptom triggered benzos as being your hallmark for general medicine patients, severe ED patients, and severe ICU patients. Yeah. And an interesting part is that you, you sometimes these studies, and I think now that I'm getting, getting into re- resident research and I'm getting more involved, these studies can't capture all the things that the authors wanted. So like you, you're doing these studies and you're like, man, can I say, can I find the amount of time that my nurse was in the room? Can I find that? Like, can, can I find if I gave phenobarb, you know, a couple of doses up front and I got that taken care of as a push or a piggyback and I got that, the patient was fine. They didn't have any, any difference compared to me going every 15 minutes, like every 15 minutes. And then the fact that across the board, one thing that I really enjoyed was the fact that people did not get to more. People did not have like lower GCSs more. So I, th- I think it's just something that we had to look across the board and say, man, if I can design a perfect study, and I can I can capture these things from the chart. I would love to know, again, an ED resource standpoint or just as a, a unit resource standpoint, because in this, this, this world that we're currently in right now, we're talking March 2022. We don't have a, a, a overabundance of nursing staff. We don't have an overabundance of people, you know, physically at the hospital. Um, so I, or who's comfortable doing these things. So. It's something we should definitely look at a little bit more, but of course, that's challenging to actually study. That's a, wow, that's a phenomenal, phenomenal take, right? Yeah, that's a, one of the most limited resources we have right now is our nursing colleagues. That's, yeah, well said, very well said. So I think one of the things that comes up quite often, and I think people are now comfortable with the data and what they want to know is like, how do I do it? Like, how do I do it? What's the best way to do it? I'm, I'm just going to, spoiler alert from my standpoint, I don't know what's the best way. <laughs> I don't know what's the best protocol. Like, what's your take on like operationalizing all of this to help people? Because again, I've seen it a ton of ways. That's a great question. And I kind of reflected on this a little bit when we're preparing for this and trying to think of like an algorithm that I have in my head and kind of combining all the literature we had talked about, you know, uh, feeling comfortable with higher dosing, seeing Tidwell's risk, stratifi- risk stratification. Um, and I guess the first question I asked myself in my decision tree is, have they been intubated in the past for this? Have they gone through DTs in the past or have they tolerated phenobarbital in the past? And what's, what's their serum ethanol level right now? And if I get any one of those giant red flags where this person, you know, comes in usually at a 150 and now they're at a 60 and their CWAs are a little acting up or they, you know, had you required phenobarbital the last three times they're here, I'm going to give them 10 milligrams per kilogram up front. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to attack on some symptom triggered benzos in addition to that. And to be honest, I, this is what I've been doing for years and, and I've had, I've had pretty good success with it too. And we see a pretty severe patient population in Chicago, especially on the South side. Um, and we're very, very fortunate to benefit from this. Um, one of the kind of newer additions I've kind of implemented um, after kind of re-going over this data again is, you know, I feel comfortable giving a smaller uh, loading dose of five mg per kilo to some of these patients who are kind of perseverating, kind of hanging out, um, whether they're, are they going to buy themselves an ICU time or, you know, can we trust them on the floor? They're going to be too much of a headache. 
Um, I'll give them five mix per kilo. And again, throw in that symptom triggered benzo uh, order set on there as well. And you know, the nice thing is you can always give more, right? There's nothing stopping you from giving another five, another one, one thirty, or another two sixty, and, and you know, half an hour or an hour or even half a day. Right. And then, um, I do get to, I do see sometimes, you know, some of our um, younger physician colleagues get a little excited, you know, they see phenobarbital work really well in the past. And then they'll get a guy who gets, you know, to Ativan and an hour later, they come back and he's cursing at him while he's in the hallway. Right. And they're like, Oh, this guy definitely needs phenobarbital. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. You know, I think this guy, we got to figure out what his disposition is going to be for the long term. Is he going to be admitted in the first place? Is he going to be able to walk home or is he going to come in for, again, I think the example I use is like a long bone fracture. Or he needs like a THA or something like that. Right. And I think those are kind of the more nuanced questions to follow um, when you get in. So I always ask my, my, my PGY twos this question then, Jimmy, is there anyone you wouldn't give phenobarbital to? Uh, I, I think for me, I try to, those milder ones that we're not even sure, <laughs> we're not even sure that it's like, that's going to score. We walk in and they, they get point, they score a 0. 0.5 of lorazepam. I'm like, I could, I can give them 130 and just, you know, do it that way. Mm-hmm. But I think we're still benzo uh, symptom triggered. Now, th- there are some shops that we can switch over to phenobarbital symptom triggered as well. And those are the ones where you can get 65 of, of PO, phenobarbital. Those are people I'm okay with. But it's not something I think about the overall flow in the, my staff. I think right now, based off the current culture, those those milder people, I, I keep away from phenobarb because I think it just stresses the nursing staff out a little bit more. And I usually get more calls from that. And I think from a standpoint, if they're like, if they're going to go home and drink immediately when we get out of here, yep. I'm just not as like concerned. I have a real frank conversation with the patient. Hey, dude, what are you going to do when you get out of here? I'm trying to figure out a game plan for you. Oh, don't you don't have to give me nothing. Don't worry. And especially when I'm in downtown Atlanta, my patients are very straightforward with me. They say, okay, you may see me tomorrow for, 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 for being here too drunk. So you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but I think it's the, the milder people who I'm just, I, I guess I, it could just be my ignorance, but I'm just not as concerned. And if they don't have a history, they're, they're not diaphoretic, they're not scoring much. I'm okay with just using benzos. And if they want something, if, they, if they're interested and tapering and things of that nature. That's a different conversation. But I think mm-hmm. in acute setting, I'm just not too too concerned. And usually I'm busy dealing with other things. And the easy thing for me to do in that scenario for not just me, but for my nursing staff and my physician staff to order is going to be just a symptom trigger benzos. Yeah. And there's something to be said for familiarity too, right? I mean, why introduce, why make something more complicated that doesn't need to be? And I think you hit the nail on the head. Your biggest bang for your buck is going to be your more severe, the patient should potentially become more severe too. If I could add one more key point and something, this is something I've seen that, you know, people almost get burned on once in a while is I think we, we, we love phenobarbital, but I feel like we always sometimes overlook some of the drug drug interactions with it as well. Um, so obviously it's a potent um, 3A4 inhibitor, I'm sorry, 3A4 inducer. Um, so sometimes, um, we see a lot of concomitant like disease states, such as like CAD or someone who's recently got stents. I always double check, make sure they're not in ticagrelor or not in, um, in azole antifungal uh, before I, before I pull the trigger on that. I've just seen us people come kind of close to it, and I don't. I think that could be a deleterious one for the patient, and two for phenobarbital's kind of you know um, reputation in general. If something were to go sideways. Absolutely. And that's one thing I'm always keeping in the back of my head. Like, let's not mess this up. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like to use it in the, in the term that most of my nursing staff is like, that's why we don't have nice things. <laughs> it is, it's constant that way. And I think we have to remember, and I think ED pharmacists in, in general and people who, who work in the ED, you have to be kind of kind of pull yourself back sometimes because we do so much. And sometimes we can do so many other 
non-pharmacy things and we have so much non-pharmacy influence in our thoughts that we have to kind of pull ourselves back and think about the, the basics all over again because it can, it can be a day where I'm running codes as, as the lead, I'm doing this different stuff and I have to like pull myself back and like from a pharmacy standpoint, is this patient taken care of first? Drug interactions, uh, d- drug disease state interaction, all those things are going to be key for me and I have to like pull myself back and talk to my learners about it as well. So is it something to, to really be to be, be thoughtful of? Um, that's that's really the big part for me. I'm looking at our, our timing and I know our audience probably is just like, come on, Jimmy, you, you just love this crap too much. So, so Mark, again, give me like a, a, a quick summary. If you like wrap it up a topic discussion, how would you close this out for your learners? Yeah, I would say that, you know, alcohol withdrawal is, is complicated and it's very dangerous uh, and you're going to see it ubiquitously for the rest of your inpatient career. That's not going to change. So again, the two mantras that, you know, Dr. Pruitt and I kind of reinforced a couple of times is early recognition, right? And the way you're going to be able to do that is by practicing your CEWA scores on patients in, in at the bedside, right? Going to them, talking to them, really understanding and seeing multiple cases and understanding what trajectory they're going to go on, right? Um, and then two, um, understanding like kind of the armamentarium you have um, in terms of treatment of this, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be all benzos, doesn't necessarily have to be all phenobarbital. It could be a mixture of that, um, but just understanding that, you know, there's uh, pharmacokinetic and dynamic considerations for both of those agents as well. And this is a um, always a great time to kind of review the literature and dive deeper into it and really try to understand the snapshot in time, which was these studies were being done. What was the other available literature that kind of influenced their decisions about how they're making uh, their algorithms and designing their trials as well? Absolutely. That, that's that's great, man. And I think just realistically, again, for everyone who's listening, just think that there's so, again, there's so many ways to do this. And if someone says there's one way, I, I, I caution those people because the same things like when COVID first happened and we have COVID experts and it's like, there's only one way to do it. I caution people who are just so absolute in their thinking when mm-hmm. it comes to this, there's many ways to use all these drugs. Same thing like with, with ketamine, my favorite drug. There's many ways to to use these drugs and it's many situations where you have to really plan out how what what's the end result. And for me, dispo is going to be a big thing. So the first question I ask my doc is, are you going to intubate this guy or, or is this guy going to go to the unit? And that kind of helps me figure out where I need the my dosing, my and how deep to look into this and figure things out. So that's that's my my major summary of all of this. Any final thoughts either from this episode or just in general? You you, you got so much going on, and you know you, you work in the, I call it the triangle of the, of the, of the Midwest of, of clinical pharmacy. Yeah, no, I'm just I feel very lucky to you know kind of be working in this generation of pharmacists, right, man? Especially the ER pharmacy, we're all so plugged in, you know, on Twitter, you know, offline. Um, I was so happy to meet you in person a couple months ago. That was great. Um, so yeah, I think if, if learners are listening to this, I think EM is a phenomenal specialty because relatively is it's pretty new, you know, considering all other specialties. So um, a lot of opportunity to publish, a lot of opportunity to research, a lot of opportunity to make a big difference in our community's uh, outcomes. Yeah, and it's just for me, I, I would have probably have to do something else because this is like the perfect fit for me. Um, it's just EM has just been one thing and people say, why do you do all the stuff you do? And it's like, it's crazy when you wake up every morning, you're like, oh, I get to do the thing that I felt I was made to do. And for me, that's ED pharmacy, man. So I'm just super happy, super happy to be able to meet you in person, even more excited to do this, to do this, uh, this podcast together. And just want to close us out in a few things. Again, Empower was, you know, last week and it was one of the biggest moments for, for, for me you know, being able to, to to lead that and be able to have my team just really come through and pull me through the finish line because so many deadlines, so many things to do, so much going on. Uh, just it was 
amazing to have 700 people from 10 countries just come to try to come together. Uh, and just the conversation that the chat is still crazy to me, like how many people were in the chat during the conference. It was just amazing. So uh, we'll be getting that stuff out. One of the, the big thing we want to do uh, is make this available for everyone. So again, we have a team working on editing all like the hours and hours of, of stuff now. But instead of trying to make this something where you have to pay for later on and something like that, we won't be able to offer a CE, but for everyone, this is going to be free. So we're going to have it to where you go to the Empire RX uh, conference site. Again, once this is once this is all done, the slides, the recordings, everything that was there will be available for you guys. So definitely I will let you know and email. And of course, one thing I do, I, I'm going to tweet myself off. So you you will know when, when it's available. So uh, thank everyone who made Empire what it was. Again, it was it was special. You know, I, I dropped a little tear at the end, at the end there. I was like, this is amazing. So uh, super excited for that. And of course, guys, I always mention that if you want to get host, uh, get part of some of the content that I'm doing outside of my premium website is, is PACU Pharmacy and Acute Care University. Um, if you're interested in contributing, if it's something that you want to see how I can get all this information right in front of me, our app just dropped this month. So you can definitely go check this out. Um, just go to a pharmacy slash acute care university. And of course, just visit the show notes. That all is going to be there. Mark, thank you again. The Charmers is in the house. Uh, thank everyone for listening to another episode and you guys know how I close it out. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't there. Perfect, perfect, perfect.